welcome to Brand Appeal, where we talk about brand storytelling in the digital age. I'm your host, Shannon Peel. Today's episode is a little special to me in that I have Licky Lavaji with me. I've helped, been working with Licky now for a couple of years on his brand story, and he's going to share with us the narrative that gets in our way. So Licky, I have a question for you. What would you like to be known for? Well, uh, my title actually says I'm a BS navigator. Mm-hmm. And what that really means is try, trying to find out what's in people's own heads that they don't even know it's there. And what's stopping them from becoming who they really want to become. Why is that important? Why is it important to you to help people become who they want to become? Well, I went on my own journey about 10 years ago, trying to find out, well, I didn't find out, it actually just dropped on me about what was actually stopping me from becoming the person I wanted to be. Um, I had a really bad stutter for almost 35 years. And when I realized where that stutter came from, I quickly realized that I had so many more blind spots and so many more narratives and stories I was telling myself that I had to resolve. And I've been on a journey for the last 10 years trying to figure some of those out. The people that you work with, do you find that they have those same stories in their head that are keeping them from moving forward? Well, anybody who's listening right now is coming up with their own narratives within seconds right now. Yes, everybody has their own narratives. They all tell stories to themselves about what's stopping them, who they are, what they are, how they want to be and where they're going to be. Yeah, we all have stories. We just don't sometimes realize that we're telling those stories so loudly and which ruin ruin and run our lives what I went through, it was the negative stories that I would tell myself that would keep me from trying. And as you know, I still have those stories that keep me from going out and meeting people or even trying to do things like have a relationship. I get just these stories in my head from experiences. So is there a root to these stories that people have? Is, Is there always a root? Is there always proof positive that what they're telling themselves is true? Or is it just narratives that they've been told it's a narrative and and I, i'll use a simple example you know when you when we were younger we may have gotten allowance from our from our parents and we went down to the corner store and we bought some gum with it we come back home and dad goes what you bought gum with all that money i gave you and bang there you go there's a scarcity mindset coming into play mm-hmm. just from that comment that didn't mean to create a scarcity mindset but we turned it into well we shouldn't be spending any more money and that was it and that scarcity mindset goes into not just money goes into love and relationships and everything else but was it the core of that like if your dad says okay you spent gum money on gum like why would that affect us that's just the way we're brought up. We hear things in many different ways. It's how we are wired. You know, we can look at a glass of water and some of us will say it's half full, some of us will say it's half empty, but it's the same glass of water. Yeah, it's refillable. And whatever your story is on it, it's how we create it. And it's based on our perceptions and our behaviors of our past mm-hmm. that we start creating these narratives. I'm not good enough, I don't belong. Yes, I'm not good enough. That's a big one. What is at the mm-hmm. core of these these things? Like I'm not good enough, and I don't belong. Oh boy, uh, there are so many different ways of saying that. Uh, looking at those, the one I always say I'm not good enough is the way you were you were brought up. 
You could have been the youngest child, middle child, or the oldest child. You could have gone to school and could have been bullied, like I was. I was told, go back to where you came from. And that created a narrative for me to saying that I'm, I don't belong here. And that narrative in grade four to grade eight, it lasted into bullying and I don't belong here either. And I just turned the wrong path and quit school in grade 11, just because that one kid that says, go back to where he came from. But it's not just that one thing, because that one thing leads to another thing, that leads to another thing, that leads to another thing. And it becomes, it almost becomes proof positive in your narrative. Yeah, we start living that nar narrative on an ongoing basis. I'm not good enough. So then, you know, like, for example, I'm a high school dropout, but I've had seven successful businesses. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that I'm not good enough? But I, that's a story I kept on telling me, telling myself I'm a high school dropout. Just until just a couple of years ago when I realized I'm actually, I dropped out of high school because I couldn't learn in high school. I, I had to learn other ways. Mm -hmm. That is so real. And when I think about some of the people who are high school dropouts that I know, they are highly successful entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. It's because school is constructed in such a way that those kids that are outliers just don't succeed. And yet those outliers are the ones that succeed in life. I know my, um, I think my son was in grade five when he came home one day and he said, you know what, mom? Schools aren't made for us to learn or to become leaders or thinkers. Schools are made or designed for us to learn how to be workers. I was like, took me a little bit while, while to think about that. But he was like, you know, get up, go to school, do what we're told, do the work, go home. I'm like, okay, you're in grade five and you figured that out. Okay. <laughs> so. right, isn't that the truth? I mean, that's, but that's our lives, right? We're, we're in such a routine-based society that we just follow routine and then we listen to the words that come our, our way and we create our own narratives and we start behaving that way. Routines, how important are routines in our lives? Because a lot of people that are successful say, oh, well, you need routine. And other people are like, eh, you know, routines, you get stuck in the rut and you can't see this, the forest for the trees. I always tell people, whatever works for them, you got to make it work. I used to be a 5 a.m.er. I used to, I read Robin Sharma's 5 a.m. club. I think there's a couple of copies right there. <laughs> More than a couple. <laughs> yeah, but I like that book because it actually created a routine for myself. So I was struggling having a structured day and I read his book and it came out perfectly. So at 5 a.m. I'd get up and I'd do a 20 minute workout, 20 minutes of meditation, 20 minutes of self-reflection and learning. And it worked out really well. Now I've given that up over the last year, year and a half. Just can't seem to get out of bed that early. Do you have to get out of bed that early to do it though? Like, could you do it? You don't, you don't. You can get up whenever you want. But there's a reason for the 5 a.m. It's, it's a power hour. The world is still sleeping. And it, you actually have the time to meditate without the energy of movement. And But these are all things that I had to learn. What works for me may not work for you. Mm -hmm. And it's okay. It doesn't matter. You don't have to do a five-game club. You don't have to do the cardio. It, whatever works for you, you've got to create that. And I always say, um, my famous thing is, nothing works, but everything works. When you think about your story, because your story, you know, you, it started as a kid in Uganda. You moved to Canada as an immigrant, as an immigrant refugee, actually. Mm -hmm. And you've done some pretty amazing stuff along the way. When you look back on your life, what is the one thing that you are so proud of that you could, that you know that that says that you can do the work, you can do whatever you want? 
I'm not sure about proud, but I, what I am happy about is the relationships and connections that I have. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the things I always strive for is deep connections, but that also means letting go of connections that didn't work for you. Mm-hmm. And then creating connections that are meaningful and long lasting and real true connections. Um, I would say that's probably what I can stand behind is the, the handful of people that are really closely connected. And then the teachings that I've done in the past in helping people on how to build those relationships and connections and being authentic. When we look back on our lives, why don't we see those good things? Why do we just see the bad things? It's so easy to just sit there in a narrative or a story and pound ourselves about the bad things that have happened to us. Not once do we sit there and say, well, no, I shouldn't say that's an absolute. I don't like saying that. Most times we don't sit there and celebrate any of the goods mm-hmm. that we do. And, you know, Shannon, you know my story where I had a stutter for 35 years. And that stemmed from that little kid telling me, go back to where he came from. Fast forward 35 years later, when I was sitting in a classroom with Bob Berg, and he says to me, you're this incredible person. You know, we care for you, love you, and you know, you can make some major changes in this world. Mm-hmm. And I actually heard those words, and like that, the stutter goes away. Because I finally listened to the words that came my way. Now, I'm not saying that nobody else said those in, in between. They did, I just didn't hear them. What keeps us from hearing them? <laughs> I'm not good enough. Why would I want to hear the good enough words? Come on, Shannon. <laughs> well, yeah, I get that. but. You know, there's so much to psychology and what keeps us. And a lot of it is fear-based. A lot of it is being scared of being judged, being scared of being wrong, being scared that we don't want to become across as arrogant. We're Canadian. Canadians are humble. Once people start getting an ego, Canadians seem to wit and humor to... I call that deflection. I call that deflection. We deflect the good that comes our way easily. Yeah. So is there something that we can do to change that, to change our perception of how we see ourselves? Well, first of all, I would say if you're aware that you're doing this, that's the step ahead of the game. If you're aware that you're not receiving the good, perfect. At least you're aware of that. Now, how you behave on that is up to you. And what I've learned is I still have a hard time receiving good, but I'm aware that I'm not receiving good. So then I step back and I say, okay, I need to hear that again. Please say that again once more and I'll take it in. So it's not an instinct because remember, I'm turning 55 and that's been a habit for me for many, many years. Don't receive the good. You're yeah. a bad person. You don't belong. That's a, that's a habit that I've ingrained in me for so many years. Now, when you have to shift that, it's a muscle memory you have to build. Mm-hmm. And it takes a little bit of time. It's gotten a lot easier for sure, but it's still not easy. What are some ways that people can become self-aware? <laughs> come and take our assessment and come and work with me. That's the easiest way. How do you, how say, do you help people become self-aware? Like, so let's say I'm gonna come and sit down with you and you start calling me on my BS. Yeah. <laughs> We've had that conversation a few times, Shannon. That'd be a long conversation, I know. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. It's just, it's just when people are ready to hear it, they'll make those changes. And what I find is if there is a pattern of a behavior that's ongoing and you're starting to realize that something's going on wrong, 
but you just can't pinpoint it, that's when you want to start getting help. Uh, for example, if you're always referring back to anger, if that's your trigger point, if it's uh, shutting down is your trigger point, if it's going to work is a trigger point, if it's turning to alcohol is a trigger point, there are things that are happening to you. We need to start realizing what those are. And as long as, as soon as you start being aware that you're doing that, that's self-awareness. When an emotion happens and you start becoming aware of it and how you react to it, that's the emotion. That's the self-awareness part. Um, there's a study out there saying that uh, 90 to 95% of us think that we're self-aware, but only 10 to 15% actually are. Hmm. Why is there such a disconnect? Well, because we think that we're aware of our emotions, but yet we let those triggers take control of our emotions. Prime example, you're driving down the street and somebody cuts you off. What do you do? You flip them a finger or do you sit there and say, oh my God, they may be having to go to the hospital. You know, most people will flip a finger and that's how you behave in all, almost all triggers that are uh, negative to you. Now there's been a real explosion in the, in this world of self-help and assessments and becoming better people since about the pre, just pre-Oprah, you know, since about the 80s when people started really trying to figure out, okay, how can I be better? Have we become better in that time? Like you said, you know, even we've, we've watched the society, we see society's problems, but if 95% of people or 80% of people still are not self-aware, are we moving forward? That's a hard question for me to answer, but I, what I will say is the books behind me, I would say half of them, if not more of them, are all around self-awareness, self-help, and emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, so that means there is a big shift in the way we're trying to be. And, you know, our program that we have launched for leaders to become self-aware, to be better leaders, uh, it's when it's people are taking that, it's actually really resonating with them and they're actually becoming better leaders. So because they're doing the work. grasping, they're doing the work, and people are realizing that they have to do the work. Uh, Shannon, there's a you know, um, a couple of years ago when I was in a course, I asked my cohort, "How do I show up when I walk into a room?" Mm -hmm. And how many leaders will ever ask that question? And when they hear the answers, they do something about it. So I, when I asked that question, they kind of snickered and said, "Are you sure?" I said, "Yeah, I kind of want to know now. I wasn't sure, but they go, well, you show up as a pompous blank.'" I go, what do you mean, pompous? And they go, well, when you walk in, you're all dressed up and you don't smile much. But until you speak, then you're warm, kind, and gentle. Now, I never knew that. Now, I knew I didn't smile that much because I thought, you know, I've always thought I had bad teeth and I always used to hide my mouth and I never smiled. And I didn't realize the impression of me was pompous. Mm -hmm. And I never want to be known as pompous. So now I've changed that. When I walk into a room, I'll smile in my eyes and just be welcoming. And that's shifted my behavior. How we show up is so important. Yeah. You know, first impressions are very important. You don't get a second chance. And sometimes people put you in that box with a first impression and you can never get out. So what are some things that we can do to ensure that we show up correctly? Look in the mirror. Ask your, ask your people, ask your cohort, how do you show up? Because you can't, that's why they call them blind spots. We don't see them ourselves until we start becoming aware of our own blind spots. So, you know, um, when I started doing the work 
10, eight, I guess 10 years ago or so, I started looking at my own blind spots. Now it's a, it's a habit that I keep on looking. I look at the behaviors, I look at the moods of other people and I'll start asking questions. You know, what is it that I did that you didn't like? I'd like to learn more about that. What is it that occurred somewhere? Or if I hang up with you, for example, right now, there'll be emotions going on with me and say, okay, what's happening? What's the emotion? Why is there a knot in my stomach? What did I do? What, what came up for me? And really realizing what those knots are all about. And once you become aware of those and how you manage that, you can deal with it. So is those knots in our stomach kind of a sign that something's wrong? Well, you're not being authentic. Mm. You're not authentic at that point. There is something that's not that's not aligned with you, your values, or with the other person. So there is a uh, misalignment of your values at that point. So yeah, there is something wrong. You got to work through that. Values. How important are values? How important are knowing what our values are? Well, it's funny, uh, most people probably know what their values are, they just can't articulate what they are. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll say things like integrity and calmness or connections, whatever they are. But most people can't really articulate what their values are. And it's okay if you do, if you can't, as long as you know what they are and you live them. Well, I know there's a, I have a workbook on my website that people can download for free and it's basically a list of values. And then I ask them to pick five and then define those five with their own language, not looking in a dictionary, but what, is the, what do those words mean to you? Because courage could mean one thing to you and something else to someone else. And then from there, it's tell, write the story about how you exemplify that, that courage. Where did it come from? And when I'm talking to people face-to-face, the first thing that they go, uh, like, uh, what do you mean, is when I ask them to define it. If they can get past the definition, it's tell me how you exemplify it. And you're right, it's that they don't understand where they got that value from. How did they get that value and where did they go? Uh, You know, like my dad at Christmas time was giving me a hard time because I was working even on Christmas day. And he goes, I thought you you weren't gonna work so hard. And I looked at him and I said, yeah, pot, kettle, hi, I'm black, you're black. Okay, this is good. (laughs) Where did I learn it from? I learned it from both my parents. So it's an intergenerational value because it's my kids are that way. I'm that way. My brother's that way. My parents are that way. My grandparents were that way. My great grandparents. So it's it is a intergenerational value that gets passed on. And those ones are really hard to change. Can we change that, though? Like we had an intergenerational value that was not positive for our lives, like the opposite of hard work, lazy. Like my parents, lazy is a, in my parents' household. But let's say your your family taught you to, I don't know, drink, party, and it's not working for you. Is there, how can we break that? Can we break that? Or is that just so ingrained in our DNA? When I hear, when I hear our past experiences and our parents' behaviors and what we brought up against, that's the way we live. We live our lives based on the teachings of our parents and people around us, which is normal. But if you've created a narrative around that and you're aware that there's a narrative, that's when you start need to start to start to need to shift what that looks like. So if you're brought up in a household that is full of partying, does that mean it's okay to party? Does that mean that's a normal worldview? For example, a worldview of a skateboarder is hoodlum and, you know, person's not good. 
But boy, their skateboarders out there that are really kicking it and they're professional skateboarders. Yeah. And for them, somebody to be on a skateboard like that and do those tricks has got to be very talented. Mm-hmm. But why is it that those skateboards are treated as hoodlums or bad people or druggies or whatever you want to call them? Now, I was one of them. I had that worldview of that until yeah. I had to sit back and say not everybody's the same. Yeah. And that's that self-awareness I had to go through. We have a worldview of certain things that are always the case. And we need to start being aware of that ourselves. And when talking with someone like you, yourself, does it help people to become more aware of who they are and what is blocking them? Well, um, you know, we've been told these narratives about how life should be. Mm-hmm. And then when I work with people, and I share what I've gone through and I share what I've actually gone through from my narratives and the transformations. People can resonate. Oh, that's actually me. I, I see that. Mm-hmm. And that's when the shift starts to happen. So how do you help people that come to you for help to find that those issues mm-hmm. so that they can overcome them and become more successful? They call me a BS navigator for a reason. I just call out the bullshit. But no, honestly, it's um, it takes a little bit of time. It takes a little bit of time and trust in relationship building. And we understand they have to be open to change. And as they're open to change, we work through a conversation that I, I coach them through and do some exercises and they start realizing where their blind spots possibly are. We have an incredible assessment that takes four minutes to do and they do that first. And so that takes the pain away from me saying anything. It's a white piece of paper that actually says, these are your potential blind spots. And then we just start conversations around that. You know, I'll ask simple things like, you know, what's your childhood like? What do you, you know, what do you think of yourself right now? What's stopping you to become the person that you want to become? Where do you see yourself? Um, Do you work a lot? Uh, What's your go-to thing to do when you're stressed out? Mm -hmm. Right? And that all gives me enough information to start digging deeper into where they're at. And usually I don't need to say anything. Usually we take them through a journey and they figure out their own blind spots. And then how do you help them to find different ways, different behaviors? different paths. Shannon, being aware that you you have a behavior is step number one. Mm -hmm. And then you have to build your muscle memories. Like I said, I still have a hard time receiving the good. So I know that and I keep on building that muscle memory. It's not gonna happen overnight. We've built these narratives over decades in, in in our minds. To get rid of them overnight is very difficult. But a system and a process in place gets rid of them. Being aware of them, somebody highlighting them or you yourself highlighting them makes it easier to say, this is why I do this. And you can change it like this or it'll take a little bit longer. So when somebody says, compliments me now, I would say majority of the times I receive it really, really well. And when I don't, I'm aware that I didn't receive it. Then I can step back and receive it right away. Now, when when people are working with you, you're you're holding them accountable. You're... Mm -hmm. It's not like, okay, I've now, I'm now self-aware. I'm going to go off and do this by myself and try to see. Yeah, no, we, uh, no, we, there's an accountability function that we have. Uh, we want to make sure that what they're working through is achieved. Uh, muscle memory is only built with routine. Mm-hmm. Routine, sharing, challenges when you haven't hit those, being aware with them. Uh, we work through them on a weekly basis. And Usually within three to six months, we see that transformation starting to happen and occur. 
and they don't even see it, but we see it right off the bat. Uh, it's funny how blind spots, you can't see your own blind spots, but others can see them right away. And when you've overcome your blind spots, you definitely can't see them, but others can see them right away as well. So it's a, it's a cash money too that way. Well, if we can't see, we see other people's blind spots, does that predispose us to maybe have assumptions about other people that aren't true? Oh, for sure. For sure. We will peg a person into a hole right off the bat as soon as they do something. Remember, I'm pompous. Am I really pompous? I don't know. I don't think I am. No. Uh, but that's a first impression. And people will peg me into that hole right away and they'll just say, you know, they'll ignore me. So how can we break that if we want, if we don't want to put people into the wrong pegs and we want to build that community and those relationships and have these conversations with people how can we not assume that the way that we the message that they're giving us because a lot of times the message that we're giving us we misinterpret and then sure. it just escalates from there so how can we as people stop that if we can shift from every behavior that we're judging, every behavior that's happening to us, and we're aware that's a behavior that's caused by a trigger of some sort or a perception from our past, mm -hmm. we can start changing ourselves. So when you see somebody and they're doing something that you don't like or you're judging them about, what are you judging them about? How are you relating that to yourself? Sorry, once we're aware of our once we're aware of our own emotions and self-aware, then we can be aware of others' emotions. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, if I was doing something right now and you did something to trigger me, I wouldn't judge you right off the bat. I would try to understand what you're going through to create that trigger for yourself. And that's that full self-awareness, emotional intelligence quotient that we talk about. Mm-hmm. Because that's not easy. What are some tools that you have to give people so that they can be aware of how other people behave? Part of our assessment, we, we put people into a assessment, uh, sorry, into eight categories. And out of the eight categories, they're blended. There's four main categories that we put people into. If they're behaving in a certain way, like they're storytelling and they're not really uh, focused, we know they're fast-paced and the people-oriented means that they're, they're an energizer, motivator, meaning they love to storytell. That's the way they are. But if they're getting into very much detail-oriented and there's a little bit more slower pace and task-oriented, I've categorized them as, as analyzers. And if they're analyzers, they need that language dedicated to them so they can function well. Now, I'm not saying that's the way you pay people, but you have to understand that's what they're thinking. You know, when, when I had an IT company, I remember I would be the storyteller. I'm the connector and I, I would just go and just create different things. And I'm a visionary. I would throw stuff on the wall and say, let's try this, let's try that. And all my engineers would be like freaking out and saying, what are you doing? Like, we need details. What are you talking about? And I'm like, no, no, just go do it. And all of a sudden people started leaving and they just wouldn't understand me. But it wasn't, they wouldn't understand me. I wouldn't understand them. They wanted more detail. When I came up with an idea, they want to know what that detail looked like so they can actually execute it. Mm -hmm. So I had to learn to communicate in a different way. I had to bring more detail into my conversations with those people. Yeah. They also had to realize that I'm just a storyteller. Whatever I say may or may not stick. It doesn't mean that I'm just going all over the place. I, I love creating different ideas. Mm -hmm. We all have to learn to adapt to each other's styles. Yeah, because I know that I 
have issues with anyone that if I say, hey, here's an idea and I organize it and I get it to a certain certain spot, I do expect people to think for themselves and pick up the ball and, and run with it. Yet a lot of people need that checklist, need to be told, this is what we do, step one, step two, step three, step four. And I get very frustrated with that. I'm not like that. If you gave me step one, step two, step three, step four, this is how we do this, like a diet or something. <sighs> yeah, no, I can't follow a direction. <laughs> you tell me to go somewhere, don't give me directions. I'll just figure out how to get there. So how can we slow down if we're that way in order to enable people to communicate with people who need more detail, who need to be told how to do it and exactly what is expected of them? And understanding, okay, these people need more detail. Is that going to, I mean, that's probably going to frustrate you to have to get to that level of detail. Um, but are we able to switch to that gear? Well, if we want a good relationship, we have to be aware of what we need. We have to be aware of what others need. We can't be very self-serving all the time, right? Mm. So um, if you want to be a good leader and a good connector and a, and a person that is building good relationships, you have to meet halfway with the other person. And sometimes you may not be able to understand what that other person's needs are. So all you can do is that is ask, mm -hmm. does this make sense to you? What else do you need from me? Um, you know, uh, Kevin, my business partner has come up with this acronym STP, not, not the car racing oil, but <laughs> STP for stop, think, and then proceed. So if there's a conversation happening and it's not getting anywhere, so just stop, think about what's happening ask questions and then proceed. And you can usually tell from body language and questions that whether they're into it or they're not. Right. And if you're aware that like this conversation isn't going anywhere, I would just, I usually just say, hey, what more do you need from me? What, what is that you're looking for? So it is possible, it's absolutely possible if we're self-aware and we understand the other people and what they need in our conversations for us to then re reframe the conversation that we're having, re-say it another way in order to communicate that and so that they will hear it because they don't always hear it the first time. They may not hear it till the fourth or fifth time. And leaders need to be aware of this, which is a lot of patience and leadership needs a lot of patience. What makes a good leader nowadays? Like before you would expect, you know, traditionally the leader was the boss and he said, okay, do this. And you went and did that. That doesn't fly so much today. So what does a leader need in order to be successful in today's world? Be a self-aware leader and you will rock it. And I'll tell you, um, the leaders that we work with now who have gone through our program and they're looking at themselves really hard in the mirror, understanding how they're behaving, what is happening to them is the way before uh, we spoke with them before our program, they were behaving such a way, uh, amplifying to the other people in the staff mm -hmm. and things just weren't going right. And all of a sudden they step back and say, oh, actually that was me. As soon as they, they say that was me and I take responsibility of that, Leadership changes right away. The teams change. They actually start respecting the leaders. Being aware is probably the hardest thing to do as a leader, but it's the most satisfying to build a team. So leaders need to not only be self-aware, they need to be aware of the individual, but they also need to be aware of the group. Understanding their own blind spots and then looking at other people's blind spots and working through that with them 
and adapting to it and showing them how to adapt to their own styles with, the, with other people. Remember, if you've got a team of 10 people, there's probably you know 10,000 blind spots between those 10 people. But let's just start by first of all categorizing where they are in the in the spectrum of the of the assessment that we do. Mm -hmm. You know, are they a connector? Are they a motivator? Are they an analyzer? Are they a peacemaker? Wherever they're at, understanding what they need, and then working through them in that language. Now you can actually start communicating in their language, mm -hmm. and it makes such a big difference. If somebody wants to work with you, and uh, what was the first thing that you that they should go and do? Take the assessment. And where can they find that? They can go to lickylabg.com and there's a, a, a three-minute assessment um, under blind spot assessment. If you take that, it gives you a report. You can read it and that alone will shift the way you think. And look at it from an objective perspective. Don't look at it, oh my God, I have all these blind spots. The word says that these are potential blind spots based on the answers you gave. Mm -hmm. Second thing is reach out to me and I'll have an introductory call with them. And in that call, we'll go through your assessment and go a little bit deeper into it. And if you feel that you want to go deeper into that conversation, we can work on a, an agreement to do some coaching with you or put you through some of our leadership courses that we have as well. What kind of people do you work with? <laughs> That's a wide range. Uh, we work with entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. uh, we work with leaders that are managing multinational global companies. We, Kevin and I have decided that we, we're gonna work with leaders and individuals that care about their people so much that it hurts when things don't go right. So people that want to see a shift, people that are transformative, they wanna see that change happen. Mm -hmm. They just don't know what it looks like and how to do it. And we're there to hold their hands through it. So I see something behind you and it uh, has your name on it. Looks like you have a buck there. So can you tell me about your book? Yeah, it's uh, it's called Death by BS. And it really is. It could be your blind spots or it could be the BS that you've got between your ears, right? It's a narrative that we've been telling. Um, when I was asked, what is this book really about? And I would say it's simply an apology for 25 years of my leadership style. This is pre me being self-aware, be me be doing the journey of when I didn't trust my staff at, at, at Matrix, when I had my IT company, when I had a hard time communicating and receiving the good, when integrity was not really understood what that was about. So this is a conversation that um, goes through all of my, my entire journey for 25 years mm -hmm. as a leader. And yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say your story proves that you can change your style. You aren't, yeah. it's not cement. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a struggle. It, it, it's difficult to allow that to happen, but as you naturally allow it to happen, um, I always say it's a compounding effect. It's not one thing that's gonna make a change. It's gonna be multiple different things. I've had a coach for the last 10 years. And that coach holds me accountable, makes sure that I go through the journey that I go through. But there's books and there's podcasts, there's therapists that I've seen, there's hypnotherapy sessions I've done. A lot of different modalities that come into play to allow things to work. Mm -hmm. And it's a team effort. It is. And then the other thing is, as you start shifting your behavior, becoming self-aware, 
others around you may keep on holding the narrative, the old narrative about you. Now, that's the choice you have to make, because everybody has a choice. Do you work on shifting their narrative if they're not ready for it? Or do you just let that connection falter and leave? Mm -hmm. Where do you spend your energy? And those are some of the hard choices I've had to make over the last little while. Yeah, because a lot of those decisions aren't easy to make. And sometimes just having someone that you can talk to when you're making those hard decisions and can bounce ideas off of, you know, when you're a leader, you're, you may as well be a solopreneur sometimes. What are some of the decisions that leaders have to make? And then they come to someone like yourself and it just kind of gives them the opportunities that are available, the options that are available and things that they maybe not ever saw before. You know, um, CEOs or leaders, I, I, I say that they all have CEO disease or leader disease where they're left on this little island by themselves that they're supposed to know everything that, that's supposed to go right. And now they're supposed to manage all these people and make sure that the, the organization runs efficiently, effectively and profitably. Mm-hmm. And they're trying the best that they possibly can. So uh, what I've learned and what I've been offering to my leaders is to bring them into a, into a group on a weekly group or a monthly group where they can actually share some of these ideas and they either talk to me one-on-one or they share within this group and we learn from each other. Mm-hmm. And that's where the power starts coming through when you learn and listen to others going through the same challenges and then they have different ways of getting over it. So it's not just one-on-one, you have these group things for leaders, you have these assessments, you have uh, these courses or workshops and the book itself. Uh, is there any other way that people can connect with you? Well, connecting is easy. You can find me anywhere on social media and on our website. Um, the work that we do is a compounding effect. We use a model modality called cognitive behavior therapy. Mm-hmm. And some of you may have gone through that, but it's we don't do CBT, but we use that model where we teach, share, and learn. Mm-hmm. And we journal as well. And it's a weekly process. So whatever we work through, it actually sticks and works. So there's been a lot of programs out there that you go in there and you get motivated, you know, in a keynote or a workshop and you're like, yes, I want to do this. And then two days later, it just goes by the wayside because life got in the way and didn't stick. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the promises that we made, Kevin and I have made, is that we're not going to work with anybody who doesn't want a commitment to change who wants a commitment to be a better person and then following our modality, they actually see a shift happen immediately because we actually work through them on a hand handhold basis and they share with other people. Then there's accountability as well. So it's a whole process that you have for them to go through. Yeah. Yeah. If you're looking for a quick fix and getting your blind spots taken care of, take our assessment and then thank you. But if you really want to see a shift in your life, we'll take you through a process and we'll make sure that happens. Perfect. Thank you very much, Lucky. I really appreciate your time. And if anyone wants some help to become a better leader and change their behavior to show up in the way that they mean to show up, go to luckylabji.com. Thanks, Shannon. So thank you for joining me today on Brand Appeal, where we talk about brand storytelling in the digital age. Which narrative is getting in your way? And how are you going to become more self-aware and get out of your own way? Now, if you have a story that you would like to share with people here on Brand Appeal or some ideas to help them live a more appealing life, career, or business, please check out marketappeal.com and contact me and let's talk about 
setting up a time for you to be here with me on Brand Appeal. Heal out. <laughs>